Hey everybody, tangentially speaking, Chris Ryan sitting here uh, as the darkness descends on Portland, Oregon. Uh, uh, This week's guest is Peter Gray, really interesting guy, a specialist in in education, childhood, and uh, like me, he goes to the well of prehistory and hunter-gatherer societies um, to try to understand how it is that human children need to be educated. What is the natural way for our species to learn? You know, there's no there's no creature on the planet that is more curious than a human child. And yet, look what we do. Look where, look where we put them. We put them in an environment that is reminiscent of only one place, prisons. I've been to prison and I've been to school. And man, you can't tell the damn difference if it's just the architecture. Um, and in fact, in, you know, there's, at least in prison, you're allowed to go outside every once in a while. You, know, you can go to the library when you want to. Uh, school is incredible. What kind of world are those school systems preparing kids for? You can't even take a piss without asking permission, raising your hand, getting a pass. I mean, are these prison camps? And I, I don't mean this as a criticism, criticism of teachers. I've been a teacher, and uh, I know how hard it is. And the reason, one of the reasons it's so hard is that as a teacher, you are in opposition to the natural impulses of the kids. Uh, man, I taught, I taught, uh, my, my, my career as a high school teacher, might as well just tell you this story. I wasn't intending to, but here we are. Um, here's how it worked. I was in Spain. I was working on my PhD. Casilda had just moved to Barcelona to live with me after working her ass off for years as a doctor and a single mother and medical school and all that. And, one of the the things that um, we sort of recognized in each other was, uh, as I think a lot of couples do, is like we could learn something really important from from one another. Uh, when I met her, she was a psychiatrist with a full time job in a mental hospital and a private practice that was thriving. She worked, I think, three nights a week in her private practice, plus you know forty or fifty hours a week in the hospital. Um, and she lived in an apartment where she'd been, she and her daughter had lived there for seven years, I think. And, uh, it had a view into a parking lot. It was in a horrible part of Lisbon, just a, just a apartment complex in the middle of nowhere with parking lots and empty lots and just not, not nothing going on there. Uh, in the apartment, the um, the lighting was all bare bulbs hanging from cables from the ceiling. <laughs> and this is not because Casilda has no sense of style. She's got lots of style. But she she just always looked at that place as a temporary, just a spot to go sleep. She was working so hard. Meanwhile, I was teaching English to doctors in Spain, making very little money, living hand to mouth. But I was living in a mansion uh, on the outskirts of Barcelona, everybody who lived in the mansion was a fashion model except for me and, and the woman who owned the place. 
Um, it was beautiful, walled compound with uh, several different buildings, flowering trees everywhere, a rose garden, a swimming pool. It was just, you know, gorgeous. Um, I was working about 15 hours a week on a good week and cruising around from class to class on my BMW motorcycle. So, uh, you know, I had like a jasmine bush blooming uh, within three feet of my bedroom window. Uh, I had a hammock, you know. So uh, quality of life-wise, I was doing really well. And getting work done-wise, she was doing really well. So the deal was I was going to learn how to get shit done, and she was going to learn how to relax. So when she came to Spain, I said, okay, you don't work. For the first year, you don't work. You just take some pottery classes, go to the gym, do whatever you want to do, chill out, and let me deal with the money. So I saw it. We watched a movie called Pay It Forward, <clears throat> and uh, which, if you've seen it, is a pretty sentimental, uh, sappy movie about a teacher who helps a kid, and then the kid helps the teacher, and, and you, you don't... But the idea is that you don't have to repay people who help you. What you do is you take that energy and you pay it, you give it to someone else, and then they give it to someone else, and then it cascades through time and through society and you know creates a better world. So anyway, saw this movie, enjoyed it in a way. I think I, it resonated with me because... As a lot of you know, when I was uh, growing up, my family moved a lot, and uh, so I was always the new kid, and uh, I mean, I went to three different high schools. I, I don't know how many elementary and middle schools and all that, but moved a lot, and uh, there were teachers who recognized how hard that was for me uh, to always be the new kid, and they made a special effort to make sure I was doing okay and to introduce me to kids that they thought uh, you know, would be open to me and, and help me out and, and, you know, help me form some of those very important friendships at that age. And uh, and I recognized what they were doing and I appreciated it. And, and it's it stayed in me. I, I have a lot of love for those people and people in in their position who go beyond the call of duty and, and really give a shit about the kids that they're spending their days with. Um, so I decided... I saw this ad in a in a magazine in Barcelona shortly after I'd seen the movie, and they were looking for a teacher. This was like August, and the school year started in September. So apparently, whoever they had had you know backed out or you know died or I don't know what, but they were looking for a U.S. history teacher at a American school in Barcelona called the Benjamin Franklin School, all English. Uh, instruction. About half the kids were the children of Americans who lived in Barcelona, uh, you know, executives and companies and stuff. And the other half were uh, very, you know, upper class Spanish uh, families who wanted their kids to study in English so that they, they would have a very high level of English and then maybe go to an American university and so on. So I went down and applied for the job and they offered it to me immediately. You know, they don't get a lot of applicants who are already living in Barcelona, who are, you know, have a master's degree, working on a PhD and so on. So they mistakenly thought that I was, you know, some sort of uh, perfect candidate <clears throat> and they hired me. So I went in. 
This was in uh, 2001, when in September, first week, I was teaching U.S. history, supposedly from the Civil War on uh, to 10th, uh, 10th and 11th graders, I think it was. So they were like 16, 17. And um, so I go in there the first week and I say, okay, so you guys have covered history up till the Civil War, right? And they said, no, this is, we haven't done history <laughs> at all. So <laughs> it's like, okay, because I was working on my PhD, which was about the prehistory of human sexuality. So I was like, okay, well, we're going to, let's go to prehistory then. Let's, it's like, before we start talking about the Civil War, let's talk about what kind of animal Homo sapiens is. I figured they'd be into this with the chimps and the bonobos and, you know, all the stuff that I was studying and the hunter-gatherers and all that. So we did that for a week or so. And then uh, 9-11 happened. So I said, okay, forget prehistory, forget the Civil War. What we're going to do is spend the next month or so talking about American foreign policy, about oil, about, you know, World War One and the, the remapping of the Middle East and why this happened. And because you're going to remember this the rest of your life. So we got into that. And, uh, you know, long story, it's already a long story. Uh, but to make a long story a little less long, essentially what happened was we had a great time for the first couple of months, and then, and then it became really clear to me that you know half, at least half those kids were not the least bit interested in what I was saying, and I didn't take it personally. They liked me, I liked them, but they were they wanted to flirt and hang out and goof around and develop relationships and play with each other is what that's what they wanted to do is play now when you're 16 17 you don't call it play because it's not rolling around on the ground but it's testing trying learning bouncing things off other human beings and seeing what works and what doesn't that's what we do naturally we don't naturally sit in a room in uncomfortable deaths for hour after hour after hour in a group of people all our same age listening to one person who's generations older than us talking about something that has no immediate importance to our lives. We don't do that naturally. And so I felt like here I am trying to get these kids to do something they don't want to do and that honestly I don't think they should do. I think their time is better spent doing what they want to do. Those kids who are interested in this, who really give a shit, well, fine. Those kids who aren't, I told them, don't come to class. I don't give a shit. I'm not going to turn you in, right? Go go do something. I don't care what you do. Uh, just don't come here and bother us, right? I don't understand the whole notion of obligatory education and the confidence that we have that we know the best way for these little for these animals to learn. The animals know themselves how to learn. I don't understand. I don't have kids. So forgive me if I'm full of shit here. But I don't get it when I see parents saying, "Oh, you have to eat, eat, eat. You have to Oh, the baby's not eating the It's a fucking animal. It'll eat when it's hungry." Right? I mean, I don't know any animal that the parent needs to force the animal to eat. We are biological beings. We eat when we're hungry. We shit when we need to shit. We sleep when we're tired. That kind of comes naturally. And if you have to teach your kid to eat, 
seems to me there's something either seriously wrong with the kid or with the schedule of eating that you're trying to impose on this kid. Again, apologies to parents out there. I know I can't imagine how hard it is. And I think one of the serious issues that parents have is trying to get their kids adapted to the world as it is, which is not the world that the parent would choose, of course. And that's got to hurt. That's got to be a really deep conundrum in your life. So you have my sympathies. I'm not I'm not being critical. Anyway, I don't want to take up all our time telling that story. I'll tell it on the Toma uh, podcast sometime. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I do a separate podcast called Talking Out My Ass where I tell stories from my life. Um, and that's, uh, that's a separate feed and, you know, that's, that's a whole different thing. So anyway, uh, that's the one and only time I ever taught in a high school and it only lasted about six months until I <clears throat> figured a way out of that. Uh, I've got a birthday coming up and every time my birthday comes around, I think about this beautiful poem by W.S. Merwin. Um, because, you know, we celebrate our birthdays uh, and they come around once a year. But there's another anniversary that comes around once a year, which is the anniversary of our death. But we don't know because we don't know what day we're going to die, right? But it, But still, every year we pass it. You know, if you're going to die on October 12th every year on October 12th, I don't know. Do you feel a little chill? Is there a, you know, is there something, some sort of inadvertent celebration that happens? Anyway, this is one of my favorite poems. And uh, every once in a while, I think I should read a little poetry on this thing because I know a lot of people, you know, our educational system, as it drains the fun and beauty out of just about everything, manages to make poetry seem boring and effete and ridiculous. Um, whereas what it is, is distilled language. The best poetry is just, you know, it's, it's language under pressure and, and it becomes as beautiful as a diamond. So here's a very short poem called for the anniversary of my death. Every year without knowing it, I have passed the day when the last fires will wave to me And the silence will set out, tireless traveler, like the beam of a lightless star. Then I will no longer find myself in life as in a strange garment, surprised at the earth and the love of one woman and the shamelessness of men. As today, writing after three days of rain, hearing the wren sing and the falling cease and bowing not knowing to what. Now, if you've never studied poetry um, or literature, notice this, and you can Google this online and and read it yourself, um, but notice how he uses negative imagery, which is exactly what you want when you're talking about the anniversary of your death, right? You're talking about absence. How do you talk about absence? How do you illuminate darkness, right? And that's what he's doing here. I mean, think about this. Every year without knowing it, I've passed the day when the last fires will wave to me 
and the silence of the last fires. What is that? The sun, the fires of the sun waving to him, right? And the silence, here it is, the negative, the silence will set out. How does silence set out on a journey? But that's what he's describing. Will set out tireless traveler like the beam of a lightless star. So he's got the waves, the last fires waving from the sun, which is a star full of light. And the silence sets out like the beam of a lightless star, which also exists, right? A super, what are they called? A black hole is a, a quasar. These are all, these are stars that don't emit light. I think a quasar emits radiation of different types, but not light. And then he goes through the, won't find himself surprised at the earth, the love of the da, da, da. As today, writing after three days of rain. So it's been raining for three days. He's sitting at his desk writing and he hears the wren sing. And what else does he hear? He hears the falling cease. He hears the rain stop. Again, the presence of the absence and bowing, not knowing to what. Fucking love that. Thank you to Danny Osmond at Emerald City Productions, uh, emeraldcitypro.com. He does the remastering of the files. Uh, which makes them sound a lot better than they did before. Thanks to ErgoDepot.com for this wonderful desk I'm sitting at, which uh, goes up and down, uh, which is a really cool thing. Ergo, E-R-G-O, Depot, D-E-P-O-T.com, if you're looking for a healthy, comfortable desk. Just today I read that even walking 20 minutes a day, if if you're a sedentary bastard like I am, you do something where you're sitting at a desk all day, even walking 20 minutes a day, reduces your risk of early death by 30%, 30%. So get up, go take a walk, get a stand-up desk, do something other than sitting here the way I am right now. Uh, what else? Basin in range for that uh, that intro music. And um, Carsey Blanton, as always, for the theme song. All right, I'm going to play you out with... Uh, a version of a very famous song called Hey Ya. You know, you all know the song. Shake it like a Polaroid picture, right? Hey Ya, Hey Ya. Everybody knows that song uh, by Outkast. Fantastic song. But, you know, I know Outkast wrote the song, but I think they were hiding the meaning of the song behind the music. You know, the music generally expresses the meaning of the song. But I think in this case, the music obscures the meaning of the song. You think about that song. It's happy. It's danceable. It's it's party. It's a party song, right? Listen to the lyrics and you'll find out that that is an extremely sad song. It's a song about how we don't know how to how to do relationships anymore. It's a song about failure. It's a song about loneliness and despair. If what they say is nothing lasts forever, then what makes, then what makes, then what makes love the exception? Oh, why, oh, why are we so in denial when we know we're not happy here? That's what the song's about. Anyway, so uh, this guy named Obadiah Parker did a cover of the song, 
you'll find it on uh, YouTube, just YouTube, uh, Hey Ya, and if it'll come up right away, and if not, Obadiah Parker, and you can see him. Uh, and he does a, a, a version of a song, just one dude with a guitar, and he gets it, and he expresses what the song's really about. Fantastic. So I hope you enjoy this, and I guarantee you'll never listen to the radio version the same way again after you hear this. Catch you next week. around because she loves me so unless I know for sure and but does she really wanna but can't stand to see me walk out the door I can't stand to fight the feeling cause the thought alone is killing me right now God for mom and dad for sticking two together cause we don't know You think you've got it, but got it, just don't get it till there's nothing at all. You get together, oh, we get together, but separate's always better when there's feelings involved. If what they say that nothing is forever, oh, the one makes, the one makes, the one makes, the one makes, one makes love the exceptions. Oh, why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, are we so in denial when we know we're not? Six, 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 six
Peter Gray, I'm really excited to, to have you on the podcast, Peter, because I've been following your, your work for quite a while. Uh, you and I both have blogs on psychology today. Um, but I think you're keying into something that's extremely important in, in, the, in trying to understand what's going on in modern life, which is looking at how children learn to be human beings. Um, and your work is fantastic. I, I started reading Free to Learn, and uh, I have to say the beginning of the book had me literally in tears in a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it's a really powerful opening to the book where your, your son tells you to go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for, for coming on. Um, wh what is your... Are you, you're a, I'm sorry, you say in the book you're a, a behavioral biologist. Is that the right term? Yeah, I, I, I call myself different things at different times, but I'm an evolutionary psychologist, behavioral biologist. I used to do sort of research on hormone binding in the brain with rats and mice, but then I switched to studying children and learning and education, but always from a evolutionary Darwinian perspective. Right. So you, you've always been sort of looking for the, the bridge between the body and the behavior. And how did you move? I, I know you tell the story in the book, but maybe you can tell us how, what moved you from the laboratory into looking at the way children play? Yeah, well, I think I probably always had some interest in reality and child development and um, and issues of education. But the real trigger, which I describe in my book, was um, when my son, who had been rebelling about school from kindergarten on into fourth grade, when that rebellion really kind of reached a peak, um, the story I tell in my book was has to do with the fact that um, actually for years this, the school officials uh, had been calling um, my son's mother and me in, in for consultations about his terrible behavior. He, um, he was rebelling even as a little child, kind of more the way a teenager might rebel. This was sort of planned rebellion. He would deliberately do the opposite of what the teacher asked him to do. And he would, so for example, when they were, when it came to um, 
to uh, learning how to punctuate and do capital letters, he decided it was time for him to start writing like the poet E.E. E. Cummings, putting capitals and punctuation wherever he wanted or not using it at all, <laughs> even though he had long known how to use these things. He would do, all, he would do his math work deliberately. He, it was no challenge to him to do it the way the teacher told him to do it. So we'd always try to figure out some different way to do it, which, and he would generally get the right answer, but it would drive the teachers crazy. They were convinced that this was going to be a serious problem as time went on because he wasn't doing it the right way. And although maybe he's getting the right answers, this is um, this is going to catch up with him at some point, in their opinion. So the, his and I can understand their point of view in a certain sense, although I would disagree with them about a lot of these things. But the but his behavior was very disruptive, and, and you can't run a classroom if you've got a kid in there who's just going to do the opposite of what you tell everybody else to do. So they wanted him to straighten out and. Um, so we had this meeting in the principal's office that involved his classroom teacher, and I believe there was an assistant teacher there, there was the principal, there was the school guidance counselor, there was another psychologist that had been called in to uh, the, for this school district. Um, and then his mother and and I was were there, and... Um, we were all there to confront little Scott, my son, um, to tell him in no uncertain terms that he had to follow the rules of the school. And we all said our piece, and um, he looked at us, and um, he said, go to hell. And that really was the turning point for both his mother and me. We both began to cry. <laughs> we both began to realize that we had to be on his side. We couldn't be standing there with this gang of grown-ups all ganged up against poor little Scott. And I think for the first time, I began to admit what I probably at some level already knew, which was that he was right. That school was not um, a good place for him. It was not a healthy place. I was, I'm not sure I was ready to say it was not a healthy place for other kids, but it clearly was not a healthy place for him. He felt it was prison. He had expressed that view all along. He felt that it was inhibiting his ability to learn rather than fostering his ability to learn. He felt that the whole thing was insulting. He felt that his dignity was being taken away. He had expressed all of this all along, and he had absolutely, he felt like our sending him to school was like putting him in prison. Now, um, and, and, and the fact that he stood up to us, I mean, I just, just really, I think of the courage for a nine-year-old kid to do that. So that was when we decided, finally, we had to take him out of that school and we had to take him out of anything like it. I mean, we looked at some progressive schools at Boston. They would have been very expensive, but uh, we determined he could have gotten a scholarship, so he could have afforded to go there. But it was very clear to him and to us that they weren't that different. I mean, it was still the same idea. Teachers tell you what to do, and maybe they give you a little bit more choice, but still they have certain expectations of what you're supposed to do. You really don't have all that much freedom. And he really believed that he needed to be free in order to learn. He needed to work out his own ways. He wasn't above asking for advice, but he felt that it should be him in charge of his learning. 
So we finally found, I'd actually heard of it before, but I had not really looked into it closely at all, um, a school called the Sudbury Valley School, located, as it turned out, only two or three miles from our home. It was really within walking distance for him. He began to walk there shortly after he was uh, he, he went there. Sudbury Valley School is this radically different a school as you can possibly imagine. It just turns our whole notion of schooling upside down. This school, which was founded in 1968 um, and has been in continuous existence, so it's now almost half a century old, um, accepts students from age four on through um, 18 or older, if somebody wants to come even older than that, but typically it's about four to 18 are the students there. Um, does not assign them to any classrooms or grades. The, they can go wherever they want on, in the school buildings or on the, on the, uh, on the school 10-acre school campus. There's a pond there. It's adjacent to a wooded area. Uh, the kids are free to do whatever they want all day long, as long as they don't break any of the school rules. And the school rules have nothing to do with learning. They have to do with keeping peace and order, um, as rules for any group must, in any, any group must have some kind of rules for doing that. And the rules are made democratically at the school, in which each student and staff member has one vote. So there's a weekly school meeting that makes the rules of the school and decides on other issues um, concerning the school. Um, and there's no testing. There's no classes offered, although kids, if they want to form a class, can get together and and uh, create one. And if they want to ask a staff member to teach it, generally they can find a staff member who would be willing to do that as long as they're interested in it. So that's the way the school operates, and for my son, this was this was heaven. This was this was exactly what he thought a school should be. This was what he had in mind. He, to this day, he doesn't understand why we didn't send him there right from the beginning. Why why we didn't take the initiative to find out about the school and have him go for there from the beginning. Well, I was very impressed by how my son's joy of learning returned. His old self came back again. He was no longer the cynic and the rebellious kid that he had become. Um, he was once again learning, enthusiastic about life, just he had always been before he ever started school, learning at a rapid rate, sharing ideas when he would come home. Um, I couldn't be more delighted with his experience at the school. But then I began to wonder, just out of curiosity, you know, does this work for other kids? And I also was a little concerned, frankly, as to whether, even though he was very happy and was clearly learning, would there be something about going to this school where there's no tests, there's no, nobody's reading textbooks, you know, that would prevent him from going to college if he decided he wanted to go to college? I didn't see myself as the kind of parent who would insist he go to college, but... I would I would not want that option closed for him just because he went to a school that um, that doesn't orient itself towards preparing people for college. So I began to be concerned about that, and all of this led me to do a follow up study of the graduates, um, and this was sort of the turning point in my career. I initially had hoped to find um, some um, education professor who would be interested in doing such a follow-up. I told various professors at 
Harvard and the Boston College and other places in the Boston area about this place, people who I thought would be interested in this. I mean, here's this remarkable school, you know, that there were people who called, said they were interested in democratic education, where here's a school that really, really follows that line. You know, wouldn't you be interested in learning about how the graduates of this school turn out? And I could not interest anybody in an education department in pursuing that line of research. So I finally decided, well, if this is going to get done, I'm going to have to do it myself. So I did a study along with a a colleague, uh, David Chanoff was his name, who at that time was a part-time staff member at the school. He, he helped me find the, you know, make contact with uh, the graduates of the school, you know, gave me a list of who they were, helped me contact them, and so on and so forth. So I did a study when the school was only about 15 years old at that time. So this was quite a while ago. Um, but there were already... Close, there were already about 90 graduates, and I was able to contact most of them. Uh, some of them had done all of their schooling there prior to going on either to higher education or life. Um, and um, <laughs> I like how, how you're, you juxtapose the two of those. <laughs> and, 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 uh, <laughs> and the study proved to me that the school works as an educational institution. Kids had come from a variety of backgrounds for a variety of reasons, um, but they, there wasn't a single one who, was, who regretted having gone to that school as opposed to going to a more traditional school, not one. Um, most of them saw no disadvantage when I asked them about that. Some saw some minor disadvantages, but they saw it as outweighed by the advantages. They saw themselves as in charge of their lives. They saw themselves as highly responsible, as 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 uh, not burned out about learning, but all the more excited about learning. <laughs> um, many of them had developed passionate interests that they had turned into careers, adult careers, and they said they would not have had the time uh, to develop those interests if they had been to a regular school. So suddenly what seemed like a really strange school suddenly made an awful lot of sense. I mean, this is a why on earth would we do anything different for schools? I mean, this makes so much sense. You know, we, we know that children, before they start school, are enthusiastic about learning, and they learn an incredible amount, and they're so excited. And does this just naturally go away when they turn five or six, or do we turn it off by sending them to these prison-like schools? And I, you know, came to the conclusion we turn it off. Um, so why why do you think there was so much um, resistance among your academic colleagues uh, in in doing this sort of study? It seems to me that would be a you know a natural sort of interest on their part. They'd want to look at alternative educational models. Yeah, you would think that they would, and they kind of do want to look at alternative models, but not that alternative. They can't really fit that into their frame of thought because, you know, the, the basic frame of thought for somebody who's in education is that educators educate. <laughs> you know, we wouldn't if, if we had this kind of school, if this was our model of school, we would, you know, schools of education would go extinct. There's no need for them. 
There's no, you know, none of the people who are staff members at Sudbury Valley or at other Sudbury schools I know of are trained in schools of education. There's no need for that. The things that you learn in a school of education have nothing to do with um, what goes on at a Sudbury, at a school like this. So, you know, the frame of mind is, well, education is something that adults do to kids. And uh, there's various ways to do it. There's sort of strict ways to do it where you, you know, you are very clear on, on what it is you're supposed to learn and everybody's supposed to learn it in the same way at the same time and, and be tested by the same tests. And more and more, that's the kind of model we're using in our public schools. And then kind of there's swings a little bit to the little bit more liberal view that, oh, we can offer some choices and maybe there's alternative ways of evaluation. We don't need to do all this testing and maybe we don't need to be so standardized. Kids can have different kids might learn different things to some degree. Um, but there's always the view that adults are responsible for children's learning. And so the teaching job becomes a little bit different depending upon whether you're, you know, a so-called traditionalist or progressive educator. But, but nobody within schools of education is really contemplating the idea that all we need to do is create the kind of environment that children need and then children will educate themselves. <laughs> yeah, you remind me of a quote. I can't remember who said it, but I, I had it up on my wall for a while in a previous office that said that something like, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, uh, you can't teach children anything. You can merely create an environment in which they want to learn. You know, and it sounds to me that what you're saying is you don't even really need to create an environment. You just need to get out of the way. You need to get out of the way. I think to some degree, though, there is a value in the kind of environment that a place like Sudbury Valley School creates. Mm, yeah. Um, because kids, first of all, I mean, here's here here's what happens at the school. First of all, there's a lot of other kids, a whole age range of kids. So little kids see what bigger kids are doing, and they want to do that. They see older kids reading, and they want to read. They see older kids climbing trees, and they want to climb trees. They're also interacting in age-mixed ways, and they're being boosted up to higher levels of behavior. So, you know, in our culture, especially today, people are kind of isolated into nuclear families. And so... You know, that might be fine up until you're four or five or six years old, but then you kind of want to go beyond that family. You want to learn things that ideas that aren't necessarily the same ideas that your parents talk about. You want to see what other people are doing. And, and you especially want to connect with a lot of other kids. Kids are really designed to learn from other kids, and they're designed to learn through play and especially through play in age-mixed groups. Play always historically with human beings, it was always age-mixed. We never had kids segregated by age until the time of modern schools. So the natural way that kids learn is they play, they're playing in age-mixed groups and the little kids are learning from the bigger kids. And the bigger kids are learning how to nurture and lead and, and in some sense teach as they sort of scaffold the behavior of little kids. Mm. Uh, they're becoming more nurturant um, through their interactions with younger kids. This is the, 
This is the way learning occurs in hunter-gatherer cultures. It's how it occurs in most traditional cultures. And um, to some degree, it's how it occurred in our culture back in the days when kids were free to run around after school and all summer long, usually in age-mixed groups, in the neighborhood groups. Um, kind of play was very common. But today, it's very difficult to, to um, for a variety of reasons, our culture, people aren't letting their kids out to play. And so this is a school where, uh, where you can find other kids to play with and interact with, and you can see a lot of interesting things going on and um, try out the kinds of things that you see going on. You know, uh, this is so important. I remember coming across one of your papers a while ago, and, and that was one of the main points that you made, how important these mixed-age groups are. And it's been a while since I've, I was a kid, but I can certainly remember that the people who held the most authority for me were not adults. They were kids a year, two, three years older than me. Right. They, they were, there was something accessible and yet admirable about them, you know? And I can remember now, of course, how silly it is. I was, you know, 10 looking at 13-year-olds as if they understood the secrets of the universe, you know? But right. that's the way it works. You, you, you see most clearly that which is just a few steps ahead of you, not, you know, the, the mountains in the distance. And I remember I was teaching in Spain uh, a while ago. I had a class of little kids. I was teaching English, and I don't know, they were 8, 9, 10 years old or something. And uh, I asked them how old they thought I was. And it was hilarious to see. I mean, some of them thought I was 14. Some thought I was 80. You know, after two or three years ahead, it just all blends together for them. So that's right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. 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 You know, when you were you were talking about uh, the prison, the, the similarity between uh, schools and prison and, and, you know, maybe from your perspective, there's a bit of hyperbole there. But I uh, I actually went to prison in Alaska and the first thing I noticed when I walked into that prison was how similar it was to school. Uh-huh. And uh huh. I mean, it was amazing. That's, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I didn't kill anybody. I, I <laughs> ate a Snickers bar and didn't pay for it. And one thing led to another. And I ended up spending four days in this prison. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So it was a very interesting experience. But it was really shocking because, you know, you go in there and. It's all about control, right? So right. there are these long hallways with nowhere to hide, no, no, you know, nooks or crannies or anything. Long sight lines everywhere, and uh, and I realized later. I, I actually talked to someone about it, and they said, "Yeah, well, generally the same architectural firms that do schools do prisons." Yeah, because it's it's the same yeah. work. This point actually has been nicely made by uh, Kevin Soling in a film called The War on Kids. And he uh, he leads the viewers through several inner city schools and then he leads them through uh, maximum security prison. Oh, really? <laughs> and you kind of end up feeling like the prisoners have more freedom. They can go into the library whenever they want, for example, you know, whereas the kids in school can't. <laughs> They can go to the bathroom when they want, or as the kids in school have to raise their hands. And they and they and many of the inner city schools now have such security devices, and you have to march through the halls and you go through metal detectors, and you know it's um, you really began to feel if it, it, you began to feel like well, if I had to be in one place or the other, I'd probably prefer the prison. So is. 
Are these aspects of our educational system unfortunate uh, byproducts, or is this is instilling this sense of obedience, submission, control? Are these really the point? You know, that's a really good question, and um, different people have different views on this. I think I'm not one. I'm not among those who says that today's educators are part of a conspiracy to um, to dumb kids down <laughs> or to prevent them from learning or to um, make them all conformists and so on. I think most people in education genuinely want to create kids who are critical thinkers, who are... Um, creative and so on and so forth but they're just not thinking that through because they're stuck in this model that that has come down through history you know his, we're really um we're really victims of history in many many ways and um you know we went during hunter-gatherer times i've done uh, interviews with anthropologists looking at children's lives in hunter-gatherer times and hunter-gatherers valued willfulness they valued uh, children's freedom. Children were allowed to play and explore all day long, including teenagers. They weren't expected to do any real work. Um, this is anthropologists who studied hunter-gatherers who lived in as hunter-gatherers into the late 20th century have um, regularly reported this. Um, the kids are very self-directed. Um, parents don't tell the kids what to do. They expect the kids are going to learn what they need to do through exploring and playing and age-mixed groups. But then we went from hunting and gathering to farming. And the farming world is a different kind of world. Um, First of all, you suddenly create uh, class differences once you go to farming. You have an ownership class who owns the land. Um, you have inheritance of property. So f the father owns the land and you better please the father if you're going to get the land. You have, you know, whereas hunting and gathering are highly creative and individualistic and you have to figure out how to do it and there's new challenges every day. Farming is more routine. It's more rule following. There's a lot of hard labor associated with it. But it's not doesn't take that much cleverness for a lot of the work to be done. I don't want to say there's no cleverness involved in being a good farmer, but a lot of the work can be done without, you know, you plow the field, you know, you weed, you do all this hard work and kids can do it. And once you had farming families, you also had bigger families. Hunter-gatherers didn't have very big families. They tended to have not more than one child every – a woman wouldn't have more than one child every four or five years. There's a biological reason for that, actually. And um, But once you went to farming and more body fat and um, people didn't nurse children for so long um, – Babies became came much more frequently, and so you had so the children now had to work. They had the by the time a child was five or six, the child would be, if it was a girl, helping to take care of younger children, helping to take care of the house. If it was a boy, helping out in the field. Girls might be helping out in the field too. And then, and you also then went increasingly to a situation, you know, as you think of the progression of history towards feudalism 
where the great majority of people were slaves or servants of one sort or another, so that most people were growing up to be subservient. And to be subservient, you have to, you can't be willful. You can't feel like you have the right to do what you want to do. You can't feel like your ideas matter. You have to just obey the rules of what you're told to do. And so child raising changed to a mode of suppressing will rather than fostering will. Willfulness became sinfulness. And, of course, as the religions that blossomed during the, uh, during the feudal period, those religions all you know, equated willfulness with sinfulness. Um, so, and schools came out of that tradition. Schools really were proud of, you know, the schools as we know them today really began to flourish uh, with the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestants, unlike the Catholics, believed it was important for kids to learn how to read so they could read the Bible and interpret it themselves. But they also believed that it was very that it was very important that the children believe the Bible and that the children follow authority. So schools were really developed by the Protestants to teach kids to read, but also to teach Protestant doctrine and to teach obedience. And kids, you know, at that time were beaten if they didn't follow the rules. They were even beaten if they didn't learn their lessons, physically beaten. So just as kids were being beaten if they didn't do their chores on the farm or as we developed factories, if they didn't work in the factories as they should, there was the feeling that the way you get kids to, to do what they need to do is you beat them. There was no sense that free will is a valuable thing. What you have to do is get rid of free will. And schools were aimed at getting rid of free will um, so that the children would grow up obedient and, um, and far from critical thinking. You didn't want anybody questioning the doctrine of the Bible. You wanted people to believe that doctrine. So schools developed, the model of school that we have today really developed in order to teach obedience and to indoctrinate children. Over time, schools were taken over by states as religions waned in their power and states increased in their governments, increased in their power, um, but still, began, still kind of served that same purpose. The doctrine now was sort of nationalism, and, and obedience became a little bit, um, you know, there was still this, this focus on obedience. People were especially as democracy began to emerge, people were kind of afraid of democracy. Certainly in the United States, um, people were afraid of democracy. What You can't have all these people coming from foreign countries and just exerting their will. We'd have chaos. So the idea was that schools were going to give everybody a kind of common basis of morality and knowledge and um, a sense of obedience to law and authority and so on. And so the people who were talking about compulsory education early on, even in the United States, were talking about it as a place of fostering um, obedience. So, so, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't design a setting that is designed to foster obedience and conformity and indoctrination and say that that setting is going to foster creativity and free thinking and critical thought. And so our schools still follow that same design that was developed long ago as a product of history. And 
and and we're kind of stuck with that in a sense. It's like a dinosaur. It can't evolve. It can't evolve to in the kind of way you can't you can't turn it upside down. You can tinker with it a little bit, but it's you can't change its structure. And it's got so much inertia associated with it. And so people try people um, blind themselves to the fact <laughs> that it's that it's not capable of serving the purpose that many people wish it could serve, mm-hmm. which is the purpose of fostering creativity and critical thinking and and um, and a love for learning and and so on and so forth. Have you uh, have you ever met uh, Daniel Everett, the linguist? No. Do you know Do you know who I'm talking about? The name rings a bell a little bit. Yeah, he. I think he's at MIT. He would be a fascinating person for uh-huh. you to speak with. I'd I'd pay to hear you two talk to each other. He <laughs> he um, spent a long time with the Pinaha people in the Upper Amazon, uh-huh. a hunter gatherer group. He went there initially as a missionary um, uh-huh. and learned their language, which is extremely difficult and unusual. It has no recursion. Um, it's a oh, very he- yeah. You know who I'm talking about? He's, yeah, now I know who you're talking about. Yeah, but I don't, yeah, go ahead. Though. Well, he, he went in with um, his wife and two young children, I believe. Mm-hmm. And the kids sort of grew up among the Pinaha. So they would be a very interesting. I was just rereading uh, one of his books. It's called Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes. Uh-huh. And um, thinking about, he talks a bit about his kids and how they... Uh, sort of were absorbed into that world and that that perspective and reality. Anyway, here's a, I'll read a a brief uh, section here where he talks about teenagers. Mm -hmm. Because I was wondering, like, are all teenagers a pain in the ass? You know, is that (laughs) hormonal or is that cultural? And here's how he addresses it. He says, he says, what effect does a Pinaha upbringing have on a child? Pinaha teenagers, like all teenagers, are giggly and can be very squirrely and rude. (laughs) Squirrely. Uh, They commented that my ass was wide. They farted close to the table as soon as we were sitting down to eat and laughed like Jerry Lewis. (laughs) Apparently, the profound weirdness of teenagers is universal. But I did not see Pinaha teenagers moping, sleeping late. Uh, refusing to accept responsibility for their actions or trying out what they consider to be radically new approaches to life. They, in fact, are highly productive and conformist members of their community in the Pinaha sense of productivity. Good fishermen contributing generally to security, food needs, and other aspects of the community. One gets no sense of teenage angst, depression, or insecurity among Pinaha youth. They do not seem to be searching for answers. They have them. And new questions rarely arise. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So if if you <clears throat> want to talk to someone who, he was with them for 20-some years. Um, right. And a uh, fascinating guy. And he's just down the street from you there in Boston. Yeah. Um, and that that made me think of a section in your book, um, Free to Learn, which, is it out in paperback yet? It's not yet. It will be. I'm not sure when it'll be coming out, maybe in um, February or March. Oh, great. Well, the hard copy's not not uh, super expensive. I don't remember what I paid for it, but it was enough that I ordered it immediately. Oh, right. uh, I mean, low enough. Um, so it, it, I, anyone who can afford the hardback, I would really recommend it. If not, wait till February for the paperback. <laughs> but here's a, a 
paragraph, um, he said, you say, we have here a terrible irony. In the name of education, we have increasingly deprived children of the time and freedom they need to educate themselves through their own means. And in the name of safety, we have deprived children of the freedom they need to develop the understanding, courage, and confidence required to face life's dangers and challenges with equanimity. That's so well said, and it really reminds me of the hygiene hypothesis. You know what I'm talking about, where the idea is that we have these autoimmune disorders yeah, because right. we, we sterilize our environment. So right. our immune response never develops the capacity to respond to pathogens and, in fact, turns on itself. And it sounds a lot of what you've. you've it is a arguing. similar idea. That's right. Yeah, we remove all the challenges and dangers. Kids can't fall out of a tree, so they never learn how to climb, and they never have the joy of of overcoming that fear. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that other mammals too play in dangerous ways, and so you have to look at it and say, well, why wouldn't natural selection have uh, weeded out dangerous play if? You know, sometimes an animal will fall and hurt itself, occasionally attract predators through play because it's kind of uh, noisy. <laughs> and uh, so a certain number of deaths occur in, in uh, most mammalian species as a result of play. And certainly that's true among human, humans. Um, there's a certain number of deaths that occur, very rare, but it occurs and injuries that occur. So why wouldn't that kind of play be weeded out? Why is it the kids are attracted to climbing trees high or diving off of cliffs or skateboarding down banisters or all the kinds of things they do? And the answer that makes a lot of sense is that that um, the value of doing this is that you are learning how to control your mind and your body while experiencing a certain degree of fear. So you're deliberately putting yourself into a fearful situation and as a result of that, learning, hey, I can, I can handle this. I can keep my head. And kids and other mammals, too, are actually pretty good at knowing what they can do. They're, they're not putting themselves as at great a, a risk as we often think they are. They're pretty good at knowing what they can do and are not taking terribly big risks. And generally speaking, they're doing things that might result in some hurt, maybe some injury, but not um, result in death. Um, so, um, so everybody at some point in their life has real emergencies. And if you lose your head at that time, you may die or your child may die because you haven't been able to, you've never experienced fear and behaving under fear and figuring things out while experiencing fear and controlling your body while experiencing fear. But if you've had a lot of practice at that in play, then um, it's not a new experience. You now you, you're more likely to be able to survive a real emergency. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, play in general is how mammals practice the skills they need to practice and so the skill of behaving keeping your 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 head and your body under control in fearful situations is one of those skills that's important to practice there are many other skills that that children and other mammals practice in play also yeah you you make um the point very very well in in free to learn that not only does this lack of play show up 
in situations like you just outlined where maybe you've got a crisis and you don't know how to deal with it because you panic because you've never been in uh, dealt with this sort of uh, sequence of emotions before. But it also uh, results in mental illness, depression, uh, lack of self-esteem, all sorts of um, <clears throat> psychopathologies that are going off the scale right now in the United States. Um, you know, again, there's it's it's like if you never flex a muscle, it atrophies, and it feels right. to me like this society is is um, producing atrophy of so many important uh, parts of our psyche. I I put a lot of it at um, at the feet of lawyers. Uh, no individuals, of course, but the fact that there are so many lawyers here and they're all looking for work to do, which often includes personal injury and so on. Okay. Uh, I live in Spain most of the time, and uh -huh. um, I've just come back to the U.S. My wife and I came here a couple years ago, and, and we're spending a brief time here. And so I'm sort of, I grew up in the U.S., but I've been living overseas for 20-some years. So I'm sort of like a foreigner and, and mm -hmm. a native at the same time. And it's striking how um, in Spain, for example, in Barcelona, if you walk down by the port, there are there's this big uh, boulevard where everybody walks on, you know, afternoons, have some ice cream, their kids everywhere running around and people on bicycles. And and the at the edge, it drops maybe 10 or 15 feet into the water. Uh -huh. There's no fence. Uh -huh. There are no signs. Right. Caution, watch out. There's nobody running around, you know, telling you, step back, step back from the edge. Right. If your kid falls in the water, well, I don't know, jump in and get your kid, you know? <laughs> that's that's right. what you do. And right. so I've never seen a kid fall into the water. Right. It's, you know, it's an image that, that I think contains right. a lot of truth for, for everything. In the United States, it's all about preventing anything from happening because of, you know, legal liability. Right. right. And so we end up sort of, you know, well, there wasn't a sign. How should I have known I could cut myself with that knife? I, I mean, right. oh my God, people, what's happening yeah. here? Yeah. So let's get into the, the essential conundrum, because I can imagine a lot of people listening to this, a lot of parents of young children are thinking, okay, great. That, that all sounds wonderful, but it's very idealistic. The fact is, that we need to educate our children for the world they're going to live in, not the world we wish they would live in. How, I'm sure you've heard that a million times. How, right. how do you respond to that? Well, you know, there are some people who believe that the world we live in is the kind of world that schools are training you for, <laughs> that it's, you have to be a conformist, you have to, your, your, your main job is to show up and be on time and do what you're told to do, and um, that you can't be creative, um, and so on. I think that's a pretty depressing view of the world, and I think the world is not really that way outside of school, <laughs> uh, and becoming less so. Becoming less so. Those kind of drone-like, uh, robot-like jobs are being taken over by robots. And um, we need people who are creative. We need people who, we don't need people who know the answers to questions that have already been answered because we've got search engines for that, you know. We need people who know how to ask new questions and find new answers to new questions. We need people who can, who, you know, to to use an overused phrase, to think out of the box. And um, 
and you don't learn that um, in school. Uh, you learn that in play. You learn that in in create in in your own um, explorations. You learn. You need freedom to learn that. And um, and so I think that and and my my studies of the graduates of Sudbury Valley School and also more recently I've done studies of grown unschoolers. These are people who were homeschooled. But without with no curriculum, they were allowed to learn as they wanted to, and and the parents found ways to connect them to the larger culture and so on, connect them to other kids. So they didn't have quite all of the advantages, in my opinion, that kids at Sudbury Valley have. But they had other advantages that the family was able to provide, and that they were able to make connections with the community. And my experience with both of those groups of of uh, adults is that they are they do very well in the real world they're very well ready and they they don't have any difficulty even going on to higher education you'd think at least there would be a disadvantage there because if you go to college you've now got to read textbooks maybe you've never read a textbook before you've now got to take tests you've never taken a test before you've got to do things on a timely manner and Maybe you haven't had to do that before. But it turns out these things are not hard to learn. And if you want to do it, if you decide you want to go to college and you haven't been raised in a closet and you know how to learn, it turns out you can do it. There are people who graduate from Sudbury Valley, the majority of them actually go on to college, and many of them to highly prestigious colleges, including, um, and this includes people who've never, ever taken a course before. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they don't have any grades. How do they even get into college, people ask, <laughs> you know? Well, well it, it, I was going to ask you. Have an advantage, you know, they, you apply to an Ivy League school and from a regular school, and you've got all A's and perfect scores on the SATs, but that's a dime a dozen. But now here's somebody who's applying who said, I don't have any any grades. <laughs> you know, <laughs> They've probably taken the SAT and they've studied for it and done well, but they maybe have a portfolio and they're, they come with some ideas of what they want to study and they're used to talking to adults. And so they ask for an interview with the uh, chair of the department they want to study in and they impress that person because they've actually read one of his articles and they're smart enough to do that. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> you know, so there's a lot of ways to get into college. There are people who go to college with no high school diploma, quite a lot of them, and um, more increasingly so from this unschooler group. Some people leave Sudbury Valley without bothering to take a diploma and go right on to higher education. So no matter what route you want to take, there doesn't, you know, we are mistaken to believe that all that tedious stuff you do from grade kindergarten on through grade 12, as if it's all sequential and scientifically determined, this is what you have to do to become an effective adult. You know, these Sudbury Valley and unschoolers just put the, you know, show us that's just completely false. It's just a total myth. I mean, here are people who do none of that, <laughs> none of it. And they go on and do just fine in life, including in higher education. You're a deeply subversive man, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) You act like if somebody misses a few days of class, they're going to be hopelessly behind forever. (laughs) You're right. Who've missed the whole damn thing, you know, (laughs) and they're not behind. (laughs) You know, I get, uh, I, I think most of the people who listen to this podcast are probably in their 20s and 30s. 
Yeah. Probably just because most of the people who listen to podcasts are in their 20s or 30s. Just the medium itself isn't really uh, that popular among older people. But um, I get a lot of emails from people saying, you know, what, where, what should I study? Where should I go to school in order to, you know, do what you do? Now, first of all, I don't know what I do, so I don't know how they know what I do. Um, but w- what occurs to me and, and what I've been saying to people is don't assume you even need to go to college. Now, if you want to, fine. But the way the world is changing, and you touched on some of this earlier with the search engines and, you know, we don't, you don't need to memorize facts anymore because you've got a phone. You can have that fact in your hand in three seconds. Right. Um, what you need to do is to be able to think quickly and creatively and 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 come at things from a different angle and a lot of a lot of these people it's like well i need to go to college in order to do this and punch that card and do that and do the other and then you're going to graduate in you know 30 50 60,000 in debt and really these days if you're interested in something you can probably contact the top people in that area directly and if you're an interesting enough person and you present yourself in a way that is somehow useful to them, you could probably apprentice to someone in that field and skip all this bullshit of, you know, getting through the different who jumping through all the hoops. You can basically go wherever you want to go if you've got enough umption or whatever that word is I'm looking for, gumption. Uh, you know, and just, uh, you don't need to do all this stuff, but in a way that's sort of a filtering process. You know, if the people who don't have that, actually I shouldn't blame the people. It's, you know, Scott was really lucky to have parents who recognized at that moment that they were at a crossroads and, and they Mm -hmm. had to pick the right road and go with him, go with his nature is it's funny you described him earlier as poor little Scott and I was thinking he must have been a fierce little nine year old. <laughs> he was a fierce little nine year old, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> How old is he now? He's in his forties now. So oh, this was really? a time ago. Yeah. <laughs> so he survived. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and does he have children? He does not. He's a staff member at Sudbury Valley School, actually. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. And wow. Uh, so in some sense, those are all his children. So. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Are there other countries that are doing this better? No. <laughs> I don't think there are. Um, in, fact, um, in fact, in many ways, it's... Um, in many ways, we are an advantage in, in that we have um, – you can have a Sudbury school in the United States, in most states. Sometimes, some states you have to go through legal loop-to-hoops to be able to do it. But in Europe, um, there have been a number of Sudbury model schools started, and um, the parents have been arrested for sending their children there because it doesn't satisfy the definition of a school. In many places in Europe – even homeschooling is illegal, let alone unschooling. So, um, you know, we we do for better. We do have somewhat more of a tradition of um, individual rights, admiration for people who take a different route than is true in most of Europe. Um, so I don't I think. And, and when you look at some of the other countries, when you look at some of the developing countries, they're taking the worst aspects of American education, the absolute worst aspects of it, and um, and um, 
And so schools are not any better than that. I got, I recently returned from a trip to India and I visited a couple of schools there. And I thought in India, you know, as you said, in Spain, you saw more kids out playing. I thought I would see that in India. And I didn't. I did not see kids out playing. I saw one little group of um, maybe teenage boys and young men playing a game of cricket in a field. And I saw a couple of young men, possibly teenage boys, flying kites from rooftops. But other than that, I saw no play outdoors. And I asked people about that. I, w I asked an old farmer. My wife and I were taking a walk down a country road. And I said, you know, I haven't seen kids outdoors playing. And he, I said, what's happened? And he said, he was about my age. And he said, well, when I was a kid, um, we played all the time. And even when my kids were kids, they played out all the time. But nobody plays out anymore. They're all going to school. India has been very successful in getting kids into school, if you count that as success. So something like 98% of them are now in school. Uh, and moreover, they're doing tutoring after school <laughs> because even parents who are poor and can't afford it are scrunching and saving to hire a tutor so that they can boost their scores up. Everybody's concerned about test scores. They're not in this farmer who had a real understanding of this. I, he, he hadn't read my book, but you know he, he understood these ideas as well as I do. He said they're not even interested in whether the kids are actually learning anything. They're not interested in they're all they're interested is in the test scores. And because they've got a system now where you need to get a 98, he said, in order to make it on to higher education. And everybody wants their kid to go on to higher education because that's the way to be boosted up in, in, the, in the new India economy. That's just, they've structured it that way. So kids are, he says, they're hiring tutors and doing tutoring after school to boost their scores from 96 to 98. I, I visited a couple of schools and I raised this question with the school principals and they said the same thing. They tended to blame the parents, not the school. They said the parents are so insistent on high test scores that they don't let the kids play. <laughs> they have them doing tutor. So this is so here's India, you know, India where people don't have enough to eat, where there's garbage on the streets, where there's flies, there's festering, it's filthy, the air pollution is horrid, you can't drink the water. So many problems to be solved. And here, instead of solving their problems, they've got all the kids in school and all the concern is about test scores. Well, you know, I don't know how representative this is of other developing countries, but I've heard stories from South Africa. I've heard stories from other places that are equally bad. So this is a worldwide problem that um, we just have become obsessed with test scores and we've completely lost sight of what childhood is all about. I wonder, I read a quote recently, and I can't remember the exact words, but the, I, the idea was that as man merges with machine, the organic parts become problematic and get sort of sloughed off. <clears throat> and, you know, as you mentioned, this has happened so fast. This has happened... In, I'm 52, and when I was a kid, I, I was outside all day. It was, you know, right. at 6 p.m. when the fire whistle goes, come home for dinner. Until then, nobody cares. And uh, and now that's over. Right. It's pretty much over. 
And that is a very radical and rapid shift in in the behavior of of any given culture. And as you say, it seems to be pretty much worldwide as far as the developed and or developing world goes. I wonder to what extent this is, you know, there's this radical shift happening in information technology, in the work world. It sort of seems like those of us who are useful to this technology are more valued than ever and and you know this separate this sort of uh loss of the middle class is is as you said robotic jobs are done by robots now so blue collar workers really aren't needed and uh yeah it sort of feels like a merging uh, with the machine not to get too uh dystopian but yeah it's crazy i'm sure you've seen in fact maybe even in your work you've got those uh the maps of how far a field children go in different generations. Have you seen that? Yes, I have. Right. Yeah. I, I think it was in the UK, someone tracked and it was some little village and they talked to the grandfathers and <laughs> they were like, they would go 10 miles away or so when they were kids and go play in the, you know, in the lime swim in the, in the pits or whatever. And then uh, the next generation was five miles. And now the kids don't go 200 feet from their house. It's incredible. Right. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, listen, I, I think your work is vitally important. And uh, as I said, you're a deeply subversive person. I hope the NSA <laughs> doesn't come after you. <laughs> so uh, I encourage everyone to get a copy of Free to Learn. It's, uh, it's a great read. Very, very well written. Congratulations from one, one writer to another. Congratulations well, on that. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining me. Well, it's been my pleasure. It's great, been great talking with you. Great. Good luck with everything. Thanks. Bye-bye. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. body is an animal doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day Heads down. I don't want to give the end 
If you wanna be free, say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.